This is the soundtrack series. Yeah, this is the soundtrack series. I'm Dana Rossi. Today's episode, a little chit-chat with the fabulous Sandy Marks about how sometimes your life in music doesn't turn out the way you thought it was going to be, but it does turn out. And sometimes it all starts with that one time you were almost Pat Benatar's ass double. Pat Benatar's butt double. Yes. How did this... So, so I just kind of. All right. So what happened was, first of all, I was a child or a teenager of MTV because mm-hmm. MTV basically started when I was in high school and it was the best thing that ever happened. Like Pop-Tarts best. Like we could not imagine anything greater. It was our entertainment. So when my friends and I would get home from school, basically all we did was go into someone's basement mm-hmm. and we would turn on our favorite VJs. And mine at the time was Mark Goodman. Really? That's so odd because everybody loved like Martha Quinn. Yeah, but she was too cute. You know, she was adorable and she had that little voice. But I loved Mark because he was a Jew with frizzy hair. Mm -hmm. And I thought if Mark Goodman can get a job on television, there's hope for the rest of us. Because (laughs) that's how I saw it. It was like, he's doing it and people like him. And Martha Quinn, yeah, she was like the obvious adorable one. And the I same was thing, like, I mean, I was a little young, I was younger, with, so, but I liked Nina Black just because she yes. was like that kind of she was more of a cigarette rocker. smoking voice and, and the really bleached hair and everything. Now, and she was just, someone I admired, yeah. but she was someone I knew I would never be. Yeah. So that's why I thought I could be Mark Goodman. Okay, now the next reason I loved MTV, which is like the more obvious because I was a dancer, was because they were making these videos with young women who were basically being thrown over the top of a muscle car or something. Right. Or shimmying up against a mic with a, you know, like a metal band or whatever. And I thought, okay, now I can get work outside of a Broadway stage because if I'm not good enough to be on Broadway, I certainly can gyrate against, you know, some rock star. I mean, what's the big deal? You're, That's you're telling the story of Tawny Katane. I'm yeah. pretty sure. No, I'm just it's like, <laughs> if only, if I could only be that attractive. So I used to watch these videos thinking, one day, this is my path. And then finally, I got lucky enough where I was dating this guy who had this cousin who had a friend of a friend whose cousin, somebody, it was like 12th Connected, and he was making an MTV video for Chrysalis Records. Now, at the time, Chrysalis and all these other record companies were making videos for MTV probably for like $200. You know, yeah. they non-union. Yeah. They were shooting in bullshit places. Have you read I Want My MTV, the oral history of MTV, no, Rob Tenenbaum sounds... and Craig Marks? It's fantastic. I mean, and it's really this love letter to MTV and just to the 80s in general. And because uh, they only cover what they call the golden age of video, right. which is like from its inception up through like the very early 90s when it started to skew reality television, when the real world started. Right. So they just kind of cover that era. But yeah, they they talk a lot about, well, they don't, but you know, the right. people telling the stories talk a lot about how it was like, no one knew what they were doing. Yeah. You could do anything you wanted. Yes. It was like, yeah, yeah, let's put five disco balls uh, for this video for Gloria. We'll put her, uh, Laura Branigan in the middle and yeah. uh, 
video yeah. flying by the seat of their pants yeah. that's it all didn't it have was. to be approved by 20 people nope. in 20 different departments nope. it was just go yeah, how much money do we have sitting in our cash account who can we pay off to use their apartment or yeah and i mean if you look at the videos now i'm sure you will notice that for the most part they look like they were shot for 200 bucks but nobody cared back then because the impact was so huge they were doing something no one had done before yeah and you were getting to see an artist in even the roughest form do something that was very compelling and everybody was watching. Yeah. Everybody knew as soon as they saw that color, they were thinking in their mind, I want my MTV. Like they were thinking Billy Idol. I yeah. mean, that's how people were thinking. So Did anyway, you know about it immediately? You know, it's like everybody knows like MTV went on the air in August of 1981 and it was overnight and the first video that was played was Video Killed the Radio Star and Pat Benatar was the second artist. But uh, everybody knows about that. But how lo- in reality... In the life of a teenager, how long did it take before you w- became aware of MTV? It was pretty much right away. Okay. It would have been like, like I'm old enough to remember before Sesame Street. Do you okay. know what I mean? So it was almost as if, what is this thing? Because it was pretty instantaneous that not only did I start watching it, that then I got this opportunity to do this video. Because this was right, this was the beginning. This was really, I don't remember the exact chronology but as you said, Pat Benatar is one of the pioneers, one of the first ones. So I, when I got this call, they said, Chrysalis is shooting this thing, low budget, non-union, which was great because I wasn't in any union. I was still a young person. But it was really important that I meet the specifications. And I was all excited because I thought I was going to be dancing with her. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. You just have to be the exact same ass size because she needs an ass double. Because when we shoot the video, I think the reasoning was they only could afford to rent one camera. That's what I think. So I think the reasoning was they would be shooting her singing, walking, and then they would just shoot afterwards me walking away as if it were her walking away. So I think that was probably what they had in mind. It was just, we need to have footage of her ass and we're not going to get a second camera. We have to do this all in one day. So if the ass fits, book it. So... I was beside myself because, okay, so I wasn't going to become a star that day, but this new thing, this MTV, I was going to be part of it. In my head, I would be spending the day with Pat. We would be trading stories about where we buy our, you know, our Jordache jeans. Because you always read about, you know, uh, the the rock star bonding with uh, his or her ass double. Correct. (laughs) And that was my assumption. It would be like the makeup artist that winds up going. Like, I remember I had my makeup done, um by this wonderful, she's now a wonderful actress. Her name is Deborah Mazur. But before Wait, she was Deborah do Mazur. Mean, do you mean like Debbie, like Madonna? Yes. Like, oh correct. my God, oh my God. Dying, okay, dying now, here. correct, that's who it was. And if you know about her history, she was Madonna's makeup artist. Mm-hmm. And that's how she got her start. And as a gift, my hairdresser, when I was getting married, gave me a gift of, at the time, Debbie Mazur. I think she was actually Debbie M at the time. Anyway, and she was so spectacular and gorgeous, but I'll never forget her like lording over my face saying, oh, you know, you're going to have to have way more mascara than, you know, that's how she talks. So, but this was like my Debbie, but I remember she was telling me when she was doing my makeup that she was going to be auditioning for a, um, I guess it was a Coppola movie. It was her first job in mm-hmm. a movie. And she was, I remember saying, I'm going to be auditioning for this new Coppola movie. And I remember like rolling my eyes hard in my head without her seeing it. Because I'm thinking, yeah, right. You're a makeup artist. Really? Like you're gorgeous, 
But you're a makeup artist. Are you going to make that leap? Because I was already a jaded agent thinking, what the hell is she doing? What does she know? Meanwhile, she was in this movie. I can't remember what it was, but it was fantastic. It was a big movie. Plus, she's done much work after that. Yeah. And she was an incredibly nice person and gorgeous, the most flawless face, you know. And But I always thought that was my fantasy. Like, I'll be like Deborah Mazur. I will go put some pluck somebody's eyebrows, and the next thing you know, I'll be traveling into Australia with them on a world tour because that's what she was doing. So, yes, exactly that. It was like I thought, I'm going to spend the day with Pat Benatar, and I will never have to worry about anything again because I will be in. Chrysalis Records will keep hiring me. Then other labels, you know. Meanwhile, again, limited talent. But I thought, you know, fake it till you make it. My mother used to tell me that. I was going to be on my way. But unfortunately, in the situation of Pat Benatar, a problem arose where, yes, I was hired. I had the perfect ass, which I had a lot of pride about. And I could not wait to tell everybody until I found out that an aunt, my mother's sister, died. Oh. And the same day I got the booking. And the funeral was the exact same time as the actual gig. And my mother told me, you cannot. You, there's no way you're working for $75 to shake your ass when you have to be at this funeral. And I didn't want to go to the funeral, but I am such a like a guilty, nice Jewish girl. Like the worst thing I probably ever did up to that point was not wear my retainer. I mean, I was really a good girl. Oh. So I wound up going to the funeral, sobbing my eyes out, which everyone like really read as that you must have really liked Aunt Margie. Oh, no. Did nothing to do with Margie. And of course, the director of that video told me I would never work again. Meanwhile, the director of the video was about my age, an NYU film student, so screw him. And yeah, and everybody, the it's, hell? it's the it's early like, days of MTV, and everybody thinks they are a lot more important. Oh, yeah, he I mean, thought, yeah, he thought he was, yeah, like Michael Cimino at the time, or whomever. You're like, he, he was like nobody. He happened to have a camera that he rented, and Chrysalis had given him this, you know, opportunity to shoot a video, which did, I might add, turn out to be not only one of their earliest videos, but one of the most well-known, famous, popular, like, well-done videos. Which, which video it was, was it? It was Hit Me With Your Best yep. Shot. And it really was a great video. You know, that was a real brush there. I mean, I but I didn't make me slow down in my hopes and dreams. You know, I thought one way or another, I am going to be somebody. And I had such a connection to so much music as a kid. I mean, I grew up listening to albums in 45s. Yeah. Uh, my sister and I had those... Um, cases those 45 cases oh the 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 plastic yes like with, there's a spindle in the middle yes and then you stack it and then you put the the lid on top and click it yes yep i had one and we spent so much time i mean my first record i'll never forget was um chubby checker um it was the twist and music yeah music it's like you know you've heard me talk about carol king you know my complete this woman to me was like it like my angel you know and i would play her albums over and over and over again and i would style myself sitting in a window to look just like her with my cat like the cover of the tapestry album and i somehow thought that if i would just embody them i would be them i was that way too in that i thought I don't know, just in my teen years and early 20s, like I was super obsessed with Barbara Streisand. And I thought, well, if I can sing well, right. uh, then eventually it's somebody's just going to show up and offer me work. And then I'm just going to suddenly become well known. Like I didn't, I don't know why, um, because I'm really not stupid. 
But I don't know why I thought <laughs> that that was going to happen that way, that it would just show up, that I didn't necessarily have to go out and do anything, that if I was different enough, that it would just work. The reason I became a talent agent is I wanted to be in control. I wanted to be the one moving the, the meter and not waiting for someone to like me. I wanted to be the one to decide if I liked you. And when you have that kind of control, I mean, I was lucky to choose a profession where I could still be involved, but I knew that I could seed all of that you know, whatever that was that I wanted so badly, I can see it, you know, move back in the back seat and let someone else do that and just support that. And I, at some point, knew that that was enough. I'm the greatest star. I am by far, but no one knows it. That's why I was born. I'll blow my heart. And, and that's why I have no regrets of not, you know, being brave enough to pursue a career as a performer. And I did have very close calls. I almost booked a chorus line on Broadway. Wow. And in, like, yeah, yeah. As the role of Morales. Wow. Yes. And it, it was heartbreaking not to get that job. It was, I was there an entire day. And the reason I didn't get the job, which was a very good one, is they made me sing What I Did for Love in the key of C, which is how it's written. And I really can't sing that well i just can't i could dance but i just then why couldn't weren't sing that you well. uh who does well? because See, she actually really... but she actually can sing you oh. know she's really good at not singing well but she can sing yeah it was this first replacement class uh, cast replacing priscilla lopez and i got to meet michael bennett oh my god and it was spectacular except funny little footnote when the audition was over and i knew he felt really bad but i wasn't good enough and he said you know i'm really sorry but i'm going to be working on a new show and i want you to come and audition for it maybe i can find something for it i said great and he told me where to go and the audition was the following week it was for dream girls <gasps> and i got there <laughs> and i didn't know because it hadn't been made yet and i thought wait a minute Here's Shirley Ralph and all these other women. Uh, they're all African-American. They're all incredible. I'm the only white chick sitting here. Oh, my God. And the only role that was carved for anyone possibly in my wheelhouse was a reporter. There's like one white reporter. Like the Prairie Dawn. Like there's one. Right. There's one. But I did not get that job. And I know he was just being nice because he didn't want to just say goodbye after all that time. But I thought, oh, great, he's doing a new show and I'm white. I'm not getting this job. And I've saw, I've seen a Dreamgirls probably as many times as I've seen a chorus line. It's one of my favorite shows. But it just goes to show that, you know, sometimes people can be kind, even if they don't really mean it. <laughs> just being kind. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah. but that's really above and beyond. It's not it's not like, well, maybe there wasn't anything for you in 42nd Street. Right. This right. was really like know, out I'm, there. Yeah. It, yeah, it really. And I mean, and I had so many occasions where I almost did, um, they're playing our song, mm -hmm. which was, uh, originally with, uh, Lucy Arnaz and Robert Klein. Yeah. And again, it was a replacement cast and Anita Gillette was replacing and they needed these three backup singers who play like her conscience behind her, but they all had to be exactly five foot three and I'm five foot two and a half. And they took mm. out a tape measure at the end of the audition. And at that half inch, they said, you have to go home. You're just too short. 
half an inch and they wouldn't do lifts they wouldn't do extra heels they said no we want you in stocking feet to be five three so whether or not i was really good enough for it i don't know but i got far enough where it was the end of the audition and they were measuring us so i got close enough because i just kind of knew how to sell it you know even if i wasn't that great so but after that i realized okay i've gotten close enough i think this is a sign i'm not going to get any closer it's time to take my short ass self and find a new job You read so many things about like, um, don't ever give up your dreams. But yeah, I don't believe honestly, in that. I don't either. I, don't believe in I that. think that yeah. we are meant, even in this lifetime, to live several lives. Absolutely. And if you're not, you're not doing it right. I and agree. I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. And I think it was just kind of like, okay, well, then that part is over. And now this part begins. Yeah. And I've had so many of those. And I've learned not to look at that as no. I gave up on anything, oh, but no, just no, as no. like, now it's time for a new, a new Oh, life. absolutely. I think that is an incredible success story. I've had so many lives already. You know, I started out as an actress and a dancer. Then I switched over and became a talent agent. And I did that for a really long time. I did that for close to 20 years. Yeah. Then I became, I got sick, so I had to stop working. And then when I was home, I got a little bored. So I started in like a high-end handbag resale business out of my living room where I basically would take very wealthy women's handbags that they got tired of and resell them to the upper middle class. And I would be selling like Birkin bags and Chanel's. I was called the bag lady of Scarsdale. And I liked it. I did it for like five years. I didn't really make money, but I was happy. I just reinvented. It was like, okay, next. Next thing. And then a couple years ago, I started telling stories and becoming a storyteller. Next. And I'm very good at closing doors and opening new ones. We all have so much to offer ourselves. And also to show our families, my three children, you know, so they can learn to be resilient, to be imaginative, be creative, think out of the box, but do things that fulfill you. And don't be scared to just try something new. It's not a sign of failure. It's actually a very successful way to live. Yeah. So, yeah, I think being a realist and, you know, I'm glad I wasn't a realist when I was younger, you know, basically like living out a dream, being wanting to be on MTV. I mean, and I had so many experiences living out dreams. Like I was in the Thanksgiving Day Parade with um, the Tramps, the musical group. Oh, my God. They were on a float. It was just luck. Like, I always managed to be in the right place. It was a Macy's employee called me up and said, we need a few more people on a float. Whose float? The Tramps. And it was them singing Disco Disco Inferno Inferno on a pirate ship. They made no sense. And I had a dress like a pilgrim with, with my buckle shoes and crinolines and a bonnet. And I was supposed to dance to the Tramps singing Disco Inferno on a boat working its way, wending its down the west side of Manhattan. Made no sense. But you had a blast? The best day of my life. And it was like five degrees. Because back then Thanksgiving was Was really cold. cold, Not like now. It was the best day of my life. So all these like fun brushes, you know, I thought it's a sign. I am meant to always be around greatness. And somehow, without really having that much of a skill set, I always managed to be around really cool talented people and a lot of them were in the music business and it was just always the greatest opportunity and every day was like being in a candy store like having my favorite you know like jelly beans or something it was just fantastic 
I mean, one of the really cool things about working in the voiceover industry, which I did most of my career, is that um, it's democratic in that it doesn't matter what you look like, it's how you sound. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my clients, it was all about the way they sounded. So for instance, uh, Dr. John, who's fantastic, but you wouldn't see him on camera selling, you know, Tootsie Rolls. But if you heard his voice, that raspy whiskey voice that sounds like he just fell out of a bar in New Orleans, you'd say, oh my God, who's that voice? So Dr. John is like, you know, that's like the perfect, the same thing with LeVon Helm. I mean, these are the perfect people to do voiceovers. Um, but then the funny part is when they're incredible singers, but the voice doesn't match, like that old Gomer Pyle, you know. Oh, Jim Neighbors. That Jim Neighbors yeah. thing. So and a good example is Taylor Dane, who I loved because I thought she was such a sex pot. So oh, I remember I remember I used to oh. love that like some of her hair was crimped. Yes. And some of it was straight and then the rest was curly. But usually a portion of it was hanging over part right, of her Right, over face. her eye, her one eye. Yeah. And, and then she like always, she could flip up but would always come down. she always seemed to be posing like Mariah Carey style, like leaning over a sofa or crouching in a position where she was just waiting for somebody to come and like take her away, like total oozing sex, sex, sex. And when she came to my office, I really thought, this is the most exciting day of my life. And maybe she like drape herself over my couch or I didn't know what would happen. <laughs> and, she, and she came and she really looked just like Taylor Dane. Her hair was tousled and blonde and big. And she had on like shiny spandex leggings. And so when was this? Was this around like 86, 87? It was probably later than that. No, it was 90s. Oh, okay. It was already 90s. It was mid 90s, like 95, 96. Oh, wow. So she came in and she had on like uh, those FMP boots, you know, like fuck me boots, you know, like with the lace ups. She was so hot. And everyone in the office, we had like 65 employees. Most of them gay, but every head whipped it was like Taylor Dane. It was really exciting, except when she started to talk. Because Taylor Dane, when she sings, has a fantastic voice. But when she talks, she's a girl from the boroughs, you know? Nice. So, I, but I buy that in, uh, I don't know that I've ever heard her talk, but I buy that just in her vocal style, which is very aggressive. Yes, Which is, is very forward moving kind of like this train that you know has but if she were ever to ask to be read copy like let's say for uh you know verizon or for american airlines she when we asked her well, why do you want to do voiceovers her response was well a my friend michael bolton does them and he said i should do it and b i could use the dough now i think these are very good answers okay like i i'm with you like i buy it yes absolutely but then if you're going to translate that for TWA, you can't say come fly with us because A, maybe Michael Bolton will be on the flight. You know, you just can't do that. And you can't say that to someone like her because she doesn't want to hear that. So you try to be as nice as you are and think, well, maybe I could book her on it. I think what she really, you know, in her favor, she probably wanted to sing jingles more than speak, you know, which is a whole other business. And jingle singers don't get booked by agents. Jingle singers would be booked by music houses and record producers. Yeah. I represented Isaac Hayes for a really long time. And Isaac Hayes came to me because he had just booked South Park. Oh, wow. So, 
it's quite a while ago. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, he was very excited. He didn't even know what South Park was, but he was like, I'm doing some cartoon. I don't really know what it is. Nobody knew. It was new. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it was like, what? It was so big, um, which eventually, as you probably know, kind of bit him in the ass because he was a Scientologist. Yeah. And then they did and the episode did a lot, that yeah. completely. But he had the most magical voice. Oh, yeah. So anyone would want to hire him for anything because he opened his mouth and it was like, yes, please. Yes, please. So I, I also I represented for a while Tim Curry. He's another oh. one. And Tim Curry, to me, it's still like the Rocky Horror Show when he walked in. Like it was so many years later. Didn't matter. The sexiest, nicest, the best voice. And every time it came to the office, you knew that everyone had washed their hair that day. You just knew it. <laughs> Everybody just did their best to just be perfect because Tim Curry was coming to the office because he was perfection. So that was my luck. It was like, okay, I can't be Pat Benatar's ass, but I can sit in an office and on any given day spend time with people that I, I don't care if I'm never going to be play their ass. I can have their ass in a couch sitting in my office. It's fine. That's good enough. And and maybe even make money doing it. And it's a very lucrative career to be an agent. So it was a really good thing to do. Yeah. So it really worked out. Do I see you've met my faithful handyman? He's just a little broad dime because when you not. What was that like for you when it's somebody that you really were a fan of, that right. you really admired? You know, how were you, how did that affect you doing your job and, you know, having to just kind of be like focus? Well, I think one of the reasons I was very successful is I was always very authentic, which means that I was always a 16 year old lazy fan club runner. Like I never changed the behavior of being a super fan. So I already had a reputation because my office was doing really well. Mm -hmm. So I could own that. And I had a beautiful office. And I think if you're trapped. But what do you mean, though, by like a, a super fan? You mean okay, just so, making it your business to know everything about well, that? Well, before that, if let's say a Judy Collins came to my office, mm -hmm. you know, first of all, she was coming into this very sophisticated, large, beautiful space. So even though I can still act like a 16-year-old, which I did, like I practically would have an autograph book, practically. <laughs> even though I was still like that, my office really uh, uh, telegraphed, she knows what she's doing. So knowing that my office telegraphed, she knows what she's doing, and they came to me by reputation, I could be my authentic self, which is a 16-year-old. So when they sat down, I did get past the gushing part, but I always gave them lots of squeezing hugs, and I always got them the coffee and the tea and the muffins, whatever they wanted. And they liked that because nobody will ever reject an unabashed fan especially if they can help them in the future you know so that's, i, uh, I, guess and that's I true. really appreciate my staff for being as authentic i i never was cool and i never expected anyone in my office to be cool i was never jaded yeah i never you know had a sense of irony at work you know because there's no room for that there's a person sitting in front of you, I don't care how famous they are, they're vulnerable when they're sitting in front of your desk. You do not know what's going on in their personal life and why they're sitting there. And even though they can be extraordinarily famous or successful, they might have a vulnerability about uh, a shyness. They might not be comfortable uh, feeling that you might not appreciate them doing something they're not accustomed to doing. Or the stakes are higher because everybody knows higher. who they are. And yes. then you and know, this is yet another opportunity for them to potentially fail, but very publicly. That's right. So when they're with me, I wanted them to feel safe. And the only safe way that I can interpret it is to be 
to myself. And I'm still, I'm almost 60 years old. And if I meet you, anyone on the street that I respect or I adore, I'm going to still act like I did when I was 16. And yeah. I'm never not going to be like that. And they like that because, you know, a lot of them took me under their wing like I was their daughter, you know, and I appreciated that. And, you know, a lot of them would invite me out, you know, to do personal things with them because I was always very authentic with them. And if I didn't feel I could help them or work with them, I tried in my best honest way to tell them that. I was always very honest, you know. But I never felt like I needed to prove anything. I had already proved it by doing really well at my job. Mm -hmm. And the proof is always in the work, bottom line. You know, you could act, you know, any way you want in an office as long as you're respectful. Get them the work, that's the proof. That's what they want to know. You know, they want to know you've got their back. You know, I never took it too far. I'm not a stalker. You know, I've never been inappropriate. I never call anyone at home unless I needed them, you know. And right. back in the olden days before we had texting and emails, you had to call people day and night and you'd get their answering machines if they weren't, <laughs> yes. you know, home. But The olden days, the, the old, frontier. The old days back in the, yeah. So, uh, yeah. And I have no regrets. I really don't. When I hear music, I can bring up just about any kind of memory from, any, you know, any time in my life. All right. Well, that's like a good segue into into one song where you just kind of tell a, a, a story, a quick story that you always connect to a particular song. That song provided the soundtrack. Well, I think I always think whenever I hear Loggins and Messina, your mama don't dance and your daddy don't rock and roll. I was a teenager on a date. It was a double date with this incredibly cute guy. So cute. I had such a crush on him. And we had just come home, I think from a Don McLean concert. Okay, I think it was like American Pie or whatever. And I lived in Queens, I lived in Forest Hills. And we were in the back of this old rickety schmickety car. And that song was playing. And I knew that this was the point in the trip when we were pulling up to my parents' apartment building and we were gonna have to get out. And I just wanted him to kiss me goodnight. And I didn't want to get out of the car. So I kept like making idle like chatter. And that song was on. And I remember not getting out until the song ended. And we crossed the street. And my parents, my mother was so manipulative. He was really cute and I really liked him. She had this really bad habit of wanting to meet my dates. And I was too embarrassed to have her meet them. So we get across the street and I fumble to get the door open. I'm so nervous because I still want him to kiss me goodnight. And my mother has double locked the door so I cannot get into the apartment unless I ring the bell, meaning that she has to come meet him. Huh? So I make the choice that I'm not going to go inside and then I just sort of turn to him and get my kiss goodnight. And now that was, oh, 40 years ago, probably. Still, to this day, I, when I heard that song, I always think of this boy and me wanting to kiss him in front of my apartment, apartment 1H in Forest Hills. So, you know, it doesn't mean anything. It's just, that's what that song did. It was like me and my first kiss with this boy. That's great. Yeah. No, thank you so much. Sandy Marks has had many lives. <laughs> yes. Actor, dancer, Pat Benatar's almost ass double, talent agent, uh, oh, the bag lady of Scarsdale, and now storyteller. Thank you so much for doing this. And thank you so much for letting me talk so much. Of course. This has been the Soundtrack Series. Thanks for listening.